Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with veteran jazz trombonist and composer Michael Davis. He talked about his new 2023 CD, Open City, at length. This album is his 14th as a leader and his second fronting the acclaimed Hip Bone Big Band. He has assembled his usual star-studded cast of New York Jazz and Studio Cats. Mike is well-known for touring the world with the Rolling Stones five times over and played with Sinatra extensively, along with hundreds of others. He's got a great story. Enjoy. Hey, everything just clicked off. I said it was good. <laughs> it's, pro- it's probably the gremlins from my cell signal coming over to my landline. I think the universe was just telling me that just, just don't get too excited, pal. <laughs> All right, just slow down there, sailor. All right, so I think we're I think we're in good shape now. Okay, so hey, sounds good, Jeff. Nice to meet you. Thanks for taking a minute out for Neon Jazz today. I appreciate it. Hey, pleasure to meet you. It's great, great to be with you. So, Open City. Before we get into your latest project, I really kind of want to get into the the goofiness that we've lived through for the last three years with COVID and how it kind of turned the artistic and jazz world upside down. How did you survive that time period? And how good does it feel to have music out now? Wow. Well, it, it, it feels amazing, you know. I mean, it's just like it, there was so much uncertainty and, uh, you know, and, and anxiety really with the, what, what we were all going through, out, even, you know, outside of music. And uh, to have music just basically shut down, uh, the business for the most part shut down, uh, it was uh, uh, alarming to say the least. And, uh, you know, we were all kind of just wondering what it's going to be like when it comes back is it going to be able to come back fully is in and, and and thankfully it has and uh it, even uh, even in a more robust way than it might have been uh um previous um but yeah it was tough i mean i did a, i did a lot of home recording stuff i worked on some various projects including including a little bit of the music for open city um but just tried to do just tried to keep you know keep practicing and writing. I wrote a uh, duet book and, you know, just kind of like everybody <laughs> found stuff to, uh, to keep yourself active and, and uh, in shape and whatnot. So, uh, yeah, it was, uh, it, it was a challenging time to say the least. So talk to me about Open City. What were the artistic forces that ultimately went into this recording? Um, I, I have to say one of the biggest things was working with my son, Cole, who uh is now 27 years old really talented bass player composer and um and um we talked about doing this project together and and uh um both from compositionally speaking and he played on four of the 10 tracks wrote three of the tracks and a lot of the impetus for for moving forward with it was the opportunity to work with him and give him an op- a voice within within the the project itself. Um, I had done my first big band record. This is my 14th record as a, as a leader, but I, my first big band record was in 2016. And you know, it's it, it's it's a pretty big expense and a lot of work and a lot of logistical headache. The more people you have, the more headaches you have, of course. You know, even though everybody's professional and doing their doing a good job and all that stuff, but just the logistics of putting it all together and and the finances of putting it all together are are uh, yeah somewhat extreme as far as as projects go. So. At the time when I did the first one, I thought, oh, I don't know if I'm going to ever do another big band record. But then after you know a few years went by, I started thinking about it again, and and uh, and then wrote, like I said, some of the stuff from uh, during the COVID, and it just kind of like 
it seems like, I don't know if everybody feels this way who does their own projects, but you, you know, you kind of get a little bit of momentum from one or two pieces that you write and then you get an idea, oh, maybe we could turn this into a whole project and then you get a little more momentum and then little by little you kind of fully in and then you're committed to uh, to going the long haul of completing the project. So what are you hoping the listener gets from this project? I'm sorry, Joe, what, what am I hoping what? What are you hoping those that listen to this get from the project? Oh, I hope that they hear, um, well, for, you know, of course, I hope they enjoy the music, um, always in the eye of the beholder. And, uh, um, I, I mean, I, I feel like it has a contemporary flair with a lot of um, meat to it, a lot of integrity, and uh, the playing is as good a playing as I've as I've been around. I mean, just some of the best players that I've got played with throughout my career, and I hope that they hear uh, a freshness that uh, sometimes you don't hear so much in the big band. You could hear a really good band, but it doesn't have any kind of unique fresh sound to it and and i think we kind of achieved that on this um i think it has a more uh, a little bit more unique and fresh sound than my first big man record so i i would love if uh listeners if it, it struck them that way but you know like i said obviously obviously i hope people enjoy the music and uh it reaches them on some sort of emotional level that's really what it all comes down to i think with music so um uh I guess part of all three of those things would be great. So how did this music journey begin for you? How did you get into the jazz? How did the the journey begin? Uh, you mean just in general as becoming a musician? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I grew up in the Bay Area, and my dad was a college band, or a college jazz band director. Um, so I was around it uh, my whole life, as, I, as much as I can remember. And... Uh, and when I was, I was playing different instruments all through from the time I was five years old. And uh, my first instrument was, um, I played the piano when I was five years old for about three years. And I, I guess I was pretty good. I was going to little competitions and whatnot and stuff like that. And um, and then I played drums for a while. And somehow I ended up on the tuba. Um, and, and then I was playing, then I migrated to the baritone horn from that. And then that was, I wanted to play in the jazz ensemble when I was in high school. So that the the only the thing that was most closely related to the baritone horn was the trombone so i just kind of migrated to that and then my dad uh took me to hear frank rossellino and that pretty much uh got me hooked uh hook line and sinker when you heard frank still one of my all-time favorites and um yeah and then i went you know at that at that time maybe still still is to some degree but the the eastman school music is was really known for a lot of really super good trombone players went there because uh, this famous teacher, Emery Remington, was there. He was there about 10 years. He passed away 10 years before I got there, but still the the legacy of good trombone players was uh, living on at at the school. And so that turned out to be really uh, a fortuitous move because there were a lot of trombone players who were much better than me and just kicked my butt and motivated me. So uh, I I feel like I got a lot better just from being around all those people. And then, yeah, my first job when I got, I actually dropped out of school to go on Buddy Rich's band, and then from that point we were just kind of off and running. But uh, um, I always, I was always inspired and wanted to be a studio musician, um, and and I'm grateful that I got to do uh, a lot of that throughout my career. But uh, you know, people like um, trumpet players and trombone players, but people like Chuck Finley and 
Bill Reichenbach and Irby Green and, um, you know, various Randy Brecker, various folks along those lines that were, you know, jazz artists, but also worked as studio musicians, which I always loved the idea of walking in and not knowing what you're going to see that day and just having to sit down and, and go and, and, and really think on your feet. I, I, I always liked that aspect of it. Um, so yeah, it was kind of, it's always been kind of nice to combine both of those elements and, and work on jazz projects and then also at the same time work as a studio musician. So certainly one of your highlights is being involved with the Stones. How did that come about? Um, that came about um, because we had a horn section uh, with Chris Bodie, actually, before Chris was a big uh, star. And Chris had done a tour with Paul Simon, and they had some common management folks, Paul Simon's organization and the Rolling Stones. And word got out that they were looking for a horn section, and they called Chris. And Chris was his first his first solo record was just getting ready to come out on Verve, and he didn't want to he wanted to put all his efforts into becoming a soloist, which obviously he had tremendous success at. And so uh, they wanted a three. The Stones were looking for a trumpet, trombone, saxophone section to complement uh, Bobby Keys, who was their main sax player for for so many years. And so we went up uh, the rarest thing because in, in my end of the business you never really auditioned you get called for a, a gig and if it works out they call you again if it doesn't work out uh you don't hear from them again so but the stones wanted us to audition for them and we did a couple rounds of auditions and they were it was a year-long contract for a year-long world tour uh at the time it was 1994 and the tour was called voodoo lounge and um yeah we got the job it was Andy Snitzer who's a great saxophone player and Kent Smith a really fine trumpet player myself and uh and we started with them and uh the first gig was at RFK Stadium in in Washington DC and we were off and running for a, a year with uh, thir- actually it was 13 months around the world with them and uh uh it it was incredible i mean just just all the things you'd expect like uh super great treatment and, and accommodations and, and, you know, just the, the, their following is, uh, uh, second to none. So it was really, it was a treat. I, I loved it. It was, it's not music that you normally associate too much with horns, but when you go back and look at their catalog and especially those fruitful, really fruitful periods like Exile on Main Street and Let It Bleed and Beggar's Banquet, all that period, like late 60s, early 70s, uh, Sticky Fingers. And they, they, there are horns on almost, almost all of those records. And they wanted to be uh, true to the, the recording, so um, they always had a horn section. Um, and uh, so it was really, uh, it was fun to, to learn all that music. I knew some of the tunes when I, I started with them, but then to see... The, the breadth of their catalog was pretty an amazing experience. I mean, uh, how they can remember all that stuff is is uh, re- remarkable. But um, but uh, it was it was an incredible ride. I ended up doing five world tours with them, which was a, a spanned about fifteen years uh, total time. So it, it it was great. I'm super super grateful to those guys. So in this process here, there's so many elements, and especially with you releasing this album now. What do you like the best about being a professional musician? Um, I think what I I think I like the independence that you you're kind of you have the ability to uh, build whatever you can envision and whatever you want to work hard enough on and whatever you want to persist at and whatever you know so many elements that that 
that can lead to success or not lead to success if you if you aren't fully committed or whatever might happen of course you know there's luck and all that thing and there's different different uh uh kind of momentum of how hirings go and this and that and this and that but but I think overall just the ability to build what you envision and 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 you know you're kind of like when I do master classes and workshops I I kind of I always say it's like anybody whose parents are are small business owners that's the way you have to look at yourself and I always kind of like that you have the opportunity to look at it that way it's not like you're working for entity x whether it be a school or a business or whatever and you're there for your whole career now you you have the opportunity to ebb and flow with whatever whatever presents itself and whatever you build and whatever you uh, nurture that into and and uh help it uh, help it grow into so uh it's been it's been uh, um something i'm really super grateful for because it's it's worked out really well for me i'm i'm uh really appreciative for the road that it's taken me on um and and you know not to say that it's always worked out great sometimes it's uh uh you take a left turn and it goes right into a dead end and, and then you just figure out how to get out of it and uh, make sure you don't make that left turn again um but uh but yeah i think I, I just i think i like the the fact that you're kind of in, you're an independent contractor so to speak and and you're on your own to sink or swim and you can build it however uh however you can uh uh, piece together the tools to make it happen. So, you know, you've mentioned Buddy, you mentioned the Stones, you've been around a lot of people over the years. What have you learned from these legends and luminaries and stars of music that you, in turn, have taught younger players that you get around? Yeah, I think I, I think what all of them, and, um, you know, Frank Sinatra comes to mind, too. I spent many, many, many years with him. And, and all of these great players like been in one of my favorite musicians Bob Mincer was in his band for about 20 years till he moved out to Los Angeles but even though we're talking about all kinds of different styles of music I think what I learned from the one common element that they all have um is that they're all fully in what they're what they're doing whether they're whether it's playing a show or they're making a recording or they're um, dealing with business aspects of whatever they're dealing with, they're they're all. I ne- I mean, the Rolling Stones are a great example too. I never saw them give anything less than 100 percent always. And you could be, you know, I, I learned that early on from Buddy Rich. He didn't he didn't want to know about if you're tired or sick or uh, just broke up with your girlfriend or whatever it might be. Your your job is to get up there and play to the best of your ability and to the level that he's the expectation that he had for his band. Um, and I think all of those great artists, I mean, listen to the, the, the consistency of how great Bob Minster's records are there. They, he always just brings it both from a compositional arranging standpoint and playing, um, but being fully, being fully committed to, to everything you're doing all the time. Um, that's, I think one of the most important things that uh, that you can uh, um, bring to what your what your you know it's really your own personal brand so to speak, but what to your craft and to what you're trying to build as a career. So everyone out there has a perception of you, your family, your friends, your fans, but ultimately you're in control. What's your perception of you? Who do you think you are? Uh, wow, that's a great question. Um, you know, I think I'm uh, a person who had has 
uh, a passion for music and has some ability and tried to, to foster that ability and build on it. Um, am I the am I the the most talented musician around? I'm not even the most talented musician in my family. My son is more talented than I am, but uh, but I, I think uh, my perception of myself is that I, I have worked hard and have uh, taken what I've been given and really tried to uh, uh, make the most of it and and take advantage of what's there and then and, and try to build on it. Um, uh, I think. I also think I'm I, I'm a pretty hard worker, and I tried to have built my publishing company and really tried to um, take something that that was new and that didn't exist before, and and added uh, gave gave something to to the to the business, to the craft, to the industry that uh, it hopefully um, you know um, contributed on on some level. So, final question for you here is, you know, we've talked about all these musicians that have had longevity and they've evolved. What's been the key for you in, in a long career that you've had to, to stay relevant, to evolve as well? I think, um, you know, it's funny. I have I have an interview series myself on my, web, on my Hippo Music website, and I interviewed Vic Firth, uh, the famous drum, well, he, he had a you know, multi-million dollar company, uh, but also he was an incredibly great perc- classical percussionist. He was 50 years in the in the Boston Symphony. And I asked him a similar question like that, and he he, he just said, Mike, he, at this point, he, this was just about a year before he passed away. He was in his mid-80s at that point. And he said, Mike, I think the, the thing that I, what has given me the most is is the ability to persist and just stay in it and just continually um don't be afraid to make mistakes and when you make mistakes get back up and and go and figure out okay I, this is what I mean I think he said it lot loads of people have said it but you learn more from your mistakes than you do from your successes and I think the ability to can you know just forge ahead not blindly by any means but forge ahead um even in the face of adversity and just accept that as as part of the growing process um i guess that's that's been the most helpful element to to my career being having having a, a good deal of longevity so michael if anyone wants to pick up open city learn more about you any other recordings or projects where can they go the best place to go is uh, hipbonemusic.com, H-I-P hyphen B-O-N-E music.com. Um, all 14 of my records are there, as well as a whole bunch of information uh, and books and whatnot. Um, if you're interested in downloading it, uh, we just published it yesterday. It's, not, it's on bandcamp.com, a really great uh, site and really great uh, for the artist, uh, much better than any of the other um, streaming services or, or places you get your downloads. But bandcamp.com, you can check it out, hippomusic.bandcamp.com. Um, and it's up there now, and uh, we're starting to see some sales trickle in, so it's a nice thing. Tomorrow's the official release date. So, uh, yeah, we're really excited, and I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you, Joe, and, and thanks for asking about that. But uh, but hippomusic.com and hippomusic.bandwagon.com, uh, excuse me, bandcamp.com, uh, that'll get you to uh, both the physical copies and the, the downloadable version. 
Hey, Michael, it's been an honor and a pleasure. Thank you for taking time out. Best of luck with the album. I appreciate it. Thank you, Joe. I appreciate you uh, and all the great work that you do as well. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening and tuning into another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players and minds in New York, Kansas City, and spots all over the world, giving fans all that jazz. Thanks to Mike for his time, humility, and cool. If you want to hear more interviews, you can find Neon Jazz interviews on either Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Subscribe to us at YouTube, and for everything Neon Jazz, go to the neonjazz.blogspot.com. Until next time, enjoy the jazz, my friends. Neon Jazz.